0: All right everybody welcome back this is that's criminal with john stamp that's criminal is where we talk true crime books authors writing and just about whatever else crosses my mind today i'm sitting down with dave larson dave larson wrestled a 300 pound black bear when he was 14 we're going to start with that he says that prepared him for a life of storytelling larson's an award-winning fortune 500 marketing executive Uh, as an author he's written history screenplays he's been a ghostwriter in fiction and biography In his latest work the last jewish gangster is true crime so welcome dave and let's definitely start with the bear i was uh, i was telling you a minute ago if i had that line in my bio i would hope it was a metaphor <laughs> so <laughs> but welcome welcome aboard and uh, and uh, yeah uh, let's start with the bear and go from there
1: well it, i uh, the san diego film commissioner i ran a it ran a uh... Uh, for 10 years, I ran Best Fest America, a student film festival for both high school and college students. And she came to one of our big gatherings. All these kids were going to stand 150 kids stand up and introduce themselves. And she said, well, well, don't just say, hi, I'm Jerry. I like to make movies uh, and sit down. No, no, no. Tell something that no one else knows about you. When I was 14, my oldest brother had left. He'd been, he didn't realize at the time he'd gone off. uh, He'd gone off and joined a cult in South America with some religious fanatic. And I was just trying to find my way, uh, just about to enter freshman year of high school. And a Ford dealership was holding a summer sale. And this is in Pasadena where it gets up to hundred degrees and stuff. And what, one of their promotions was five bucks to wrestle a bear, (laughs) which today they would crucify the people doing this cruelty, the animals, the SPCA would be out. They'd be, they'd be, they'd be, guns would be blazing or something. And, um, Uh, So I stood in line and waited and waited. And there were these three gangster brothers in front of me called the Balder brothers tattoos all over them. They got in and wrestled. If you could pin the bear, you would win 500 bucks. So it it was like pretty, pretty good deal. Now I'm watching these guys wrestle them and these bald and the bear was, had a muzzle on and it had, it had mittens on, so it couldn't tear you apart. And, uh, Whatever you would do, with the bear, the bear would kind of do back. So when these guys came in and tried to slug, slug them in the chest and stuff, this bear just kind of popped them back. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I was five six, weighed 140 pounds. I had no chance. And these bald brothers finished doing their stuff, and they were screaming, "That's bullshit, man!" After they tried to get it, bears don't have a neck. It like that goes from their shoulders into their head. There's no neck. So these guys are trying to get a choke holds on this bear. This bear didn't care. Nope. he's just brushing them off. So they took a, they took a break right after the Balder Brothers, and they took the bear to another cage where they had a huge galvanized bucket full of ice where he plopped his ass down there. And he just sat in this bucket of ice while they fed him Twinkies and apples and stuff like that. <laughs> and then they, they then they blew the whistle and brought him back in the cage, put his muzzle on and everything. It was my turn. So I get this little pieces of, of ice clinging to his ass. You know, he's all wet stuff. <laughs> bear. And what did I do? I'm just, I'm in there. I'm just, this thing's towering. He stands up. So he's towering over me. And I just ran in and gave him a big bear hug. And he (laughs) fell over on top of me. Oh, (laughs) of course! And I squirmed around (laughs) three hundred pounds. (laughs) And they blew their whistle and they got him off me. That was me wrestling a bear.
0: Wow! Yeah, yeah. Imagine trying to run that stunt today. Oh,
1: oh, oh! They wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The the dealership gets sued. You'd get sued for messing with a bear. (laughs) Yeah, the bear would
1: get sued. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's. That's a good one. My kids, uh, nowhere near as cool. My kids, uh, always, uh, like to regale people by saying that their dad got to pet a cheetah once. Cause when I was Ooh. in Africa, when I was in Africa, they had this cheetah who was pretty much just a big docile cat. And so I got a picture of me petting her and her licking me and not eating my hand, but my, to a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, that's a, that's a really cool story, but she was on the other side of a fence. <laughs> very important detail. <laughs> yeah, but uh so yeah, so you say um that uh, wrestling that bear uh prepped you to be able to work with uh Michael Hardy the subject of uh your your uh, newest book the last jewish gangster uh for two and a half years to to get his biography down or his story so to speak. So yeah, um the uh as i've read it as i've read it we talked about this a little bit uh, I don't know the guy, um, but didn't sound like the easiest person to work with. Um, but yeah, if you could go in and how did, how did you come, come to be the guy who got to write his story?
1: Well, I, I was, uh, the, the full story what happened was that I, um, I wrote a, wrote the first chapter of a friends book who was in the, uh, California penal system for 15 years. He was accessory to murder. He went a roll on hell's angels. And so they put him away. He was a, a quote, accomplice to a murder. And um, so I, I met him. Uh, he was working with an organization here called Boys to Mend, a mentoring group. That's really cool. And um, so he told me about that. I wrote the first chapter and we always wanted to get back together and do some more. He still does. We still talk. Um, but I wrote that first chapter. I was living with my brother. My brother lives with no one. <laughs> My brother's a year and a half older than me. Um, my soon-to-be divorced ex-wife is sitting in one bedroom reading a Bible. My soon-to-be, um, ex, soon-to-be ex, uh, son, uh, stepson, is in. Uh, another bedroom and he's practicing his scales for musical theater and his dog is howling (laughs) (laughs) and my brother is watching like he always did two hours of financial news tv and i'm sitting in the kitchen along with him kind of and i've got to get out of here it was drizzling outside it was a may uh this is may nine years ago and uh this month yeah and i went down to the upstart Crow Bookstore in Seaport Village where they were holding a opening paragraph slam and I went down and read the opening paragraph to this gentleman's story and I, I won first place and uh, someone um, uh, one of first place was a cup of coffee and a book you know <laughs> uh, uh, and a gentleman contacted me a month later through LinkedIn are you the same Dave Larson that was at this thing and read that yeah, I got a job you might want, and he introduced me to Hardy. He did it uh-huh. just via, via emails, and uh, so I met Hardy at a little restaurant, uh, not knowing much about him, not knowing he'd killed nineteen people, the last one being his wife, not knowing uh, he'd spent twenty six years in prisons and jails. He was a godson of Bugsy Siegel. The the crimes he committed. Uh, he kept on telling me what he did, which is interesting. So we decided we'd meet weekly. And I kept on documenting what he did. And finally, he trusted me enough to tell me why. And it had everything to do with his mom. His mother was a queen in New York crime. They set her up with the largest bookmaking operation. She handled out. She handed payouts to dirty cops, politicians, and judges. And this little five-year-old kid, would come over to her house. She'd say, get away, get away from me, Michael. She had her parents raising him. And he was always living in her shadow. She never gave him a taste of anything. She just, and his father was out on the scene. So he kept thinking to himself, okay, you love them? The gangsters, mobsters, you don't love me. You think they're tough? Watch me. And so every time he committed a crime, he wanted to make sure his mother knew. So, which is just kind of really
0: distorted. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and the way you detail that uh, as, as the book kicks off, it's, it's exactly that. She just, just dumped him, and like, but she'd pop in every now and then to either show off or something, but it was, there was, it, it, it and throughout the book and the way he puts it, it it's, it, uh, I think he, uh, I think he put it best that, that she, he was an accessory to, of yeah. Hers. Yeah. And he, he said her husbands were the same way. There was just an accessory until to be used and thrown away. Yep.
1: Uh, th- the only people that tamed her were like Bugsy Siegel and Joey Adonis. And she had a couple, one husband that was probably more in charge. But out to that, she just used her men. She ate them. He said she ate her men. Yeah. You know, he he talks about when he was in third grade, there was a fire drill at school and some teacher he was. He was kind of going his own way and not paying attention. He wasn't in line. Some teacher grabbed him by the back of the neck, and squeezed, and her nails dug into, his, dug into his neck. And his mom came by next day to say hi to her dad. There was Michael. So what are those red marks on your neck? Oh, I'm going to go kill that teacher. There you go. And what, what, she, what she did, what, how she threatened this woman is just... And Michael was proud initially, like, "Geez, my mom cares." She said, "No, nah, no." Nah. He realized he was just a, She would
0: have done the same thing as somebody who would have dented her car door. Yep. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All save and face, and that in that particular instant that you talk about that saving face, as we talked about a little bit, that his whole life is driven by it's him. It, it's, it's 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 every slight is on him, and that and that's so. Uh, common to though you know to to that the antisocial type personality. It's just such a every tiny slight, but that was his that was his uh, architecture, so to speak.
1: That's that was definitely how he was wired. The one thing that was fascinating his his relationship with his buddies, uh, the people who pulled crimes with, there was a real loyalty and a friendship there that kind of transcended that. It was just about Hardy, you know. Um, I saw that when he was, when he talked about the gang he rumbled with in Brooklyn and some of the business deals and the sides, he got involved in, uh, it just, it, but what drove him all the time. I mean, he was, he was pretty much under control. He, you know, he was shunned by his mom until he was 12 years old and his grandfather who was raising him died, his Southern Baptist grandfather. And that just, there were no governors on his engine. He just went wild. He's just so angry. That's the first time. First time he tried to commit suicide.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I I thought it was, I thought it was funny that, like, I think he was like six and ran up onto the roof naked and just kind of looked out over the cityscape. Um, But then that one, you know, he didn't do it. But it was just a funny image that you put in there. You know, freezing cold, snowing you in know in a, in a brooklyn winter you just stand up there just watching the, the six-year-old kid watching this watching the city balloon but kind of owning it as a six-year-old at the same time yeah. but yeah the the way you documented that that just dissent because I, I mean he starts out hopeful and then just the from the indifference to losing that mentor just and you see and uh, by the time he goes to florida it's like he was worried his biggest worry was leaving his friends um, yeah. and his gang leaving his leaving his gang to to go to florida is just un- i mean it's its a, like you said the guy is uh responsible for 19 people uh worked for the mob was a uh he did time in mexico um in like the worst prison in mexico but you you you, you as you document it you generated a, a lot of uh a lot of um you wanted to rally for the kid and you just watch it going it's like watching a slow motion train wreck it's just you just know it's just not going to work out. You know, you can just see it. Um, and there were, well, periods yeah.
1: of, there were periods in his life. He got a job um, when he, he went to Bordentown Reformatory uh, for a, a, a robbery of a bar. Uh, he got two and a half years. And by the way, because they used um, the term the Bordentown Reformatory in New Jersey, 20 uh, some years later, he'd be brought up on gun charges and got in front of a judge and had a clerk or something read fully into his file. They would have seen he was 19 when he was born in town. They assumed he was a minor. So they never three struck him. He would have been stuck in prison in, in upstate New York somewhere the rest of his life. But there were just things like that where he almost got lucky.
0: Yeah, the, the system, <laughs> depend on a bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you just just never know. Man, that's so he um he he also he he ran with Sammy the Bull, right? They were they did stick ups together, like and it was I, I don't know the hierarchy. Was was Sammy in charge he in charge or were they kind of running and gunning together?
1: No, uh Hardy was in charge for yeah. for over a couple over three years, Sammy the Bull and him pulled 23 jobs together. Hardy had a smaller crew that would do some uh you know, stick up a uh, dice game or, or, uh, uh, rub some, drop some drug dealers or something. When he got involved with Sammy though, they really upped the stakes. They were, they, three different times, they kidnapped drug Lords in New York city and held them for $1 million ransoms. And they put them on ice in some place, you know, and, uh, they collect the money afterwards. Um, they, uh, there were dirty cops, as you as you can imagine, in New York at one time, and uh, uh, a cop that they were working with that was feeding them the information, told them where they did their last pickup when they were doing. Um, there were some bag man was picking up all kinds of uh, payoffs along the way. And they hit them three different times, got a million dollars total out of them, Just split that up, and I asked them where the money went. This is fascinating, <laughs> and he almost got. He was uncomfortable. I said, "What'd you do with all your money?" I'm, it was. He didn't like to be challenged too much, and he just I just spent it all. You know. Well, how do you spend a million dollars not tax free? You know, he didn't buy homes. Yeah, he bought some cars, but he'd rather steal a car. So it was. It was going into uh, wearing the flashy pinky ring, going into a big club, the Silhouette Club, where where someone famous is, is Sam Cooke is performing or something like that, tipping a hundred dollars back in the sixties, early sixties, peeling off money to, to the major D to the, to anyone that gives them a table up front and stuff. It was like that scene from, from Goodfellas where they walk into a bar, uh, big club and uh, was Bobby Vinton is singing. And it was almost the same way. Hardy, Hardy was living that life. By the way, he did. Not, he actually met Henry Hill from Goodfellas. Oh, wow. He spent some time in prison. He yeah, his opinion. He was just a rat punk, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as you can I, imagine.
0: I only remember Henry Hill from uh, Howard Stern show <laughs> back, you know, oh, yeah. back commuting, commuting back and forth to college. And that guy'd show up and even as like a 18, 19 year old listening to that guy is like, that guy's not doing well. Like that's a, that's a lot of hard years on that, on that guy, you know, it's just, but I mean, yeah. that's, but like you said, uh, you know, uh, dropping a hundred just to get a table all just feeds into that, that, uh, that persona his mother created by, you know, threatening the teacher showing off, uh, in all these different ways just to save face. Um, but yeah, his mom, she could have, uh, she could, she should have a, a book all herself just in the, in the parts that, that you write about her. Uh, cause when I saw the, 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 you know, I didn't get past the cover until, you know, I'm immediately thinking of Bugsy Siegel, Maya Lansky, uh, that, that old murder Inc crew uh, when it says the last Jewish gangster, cause I, I, I don't outside of those guys that the, you know, the Gattis and all the flashier people take, take the cake. Um, but it, it's funny as soon as I start reading, I'm like, Oh, okay, well, that makes sense, mom, you know, Bugsy Siegel's is god, <laughs> he's Bugsy Siegel's godson. He ran with Meyer Langsio. Makes perfect sense. But um, yeah, his mom just uh, coming from nothing. And, and like you said, queen of the underground in New York City, running money laundering operations for all these these four famous, very famous, you know, the guys who, who you're not supposed to put the Cosa Nostra on the map, but these are the guys that did, you know, right? But uh, yeah, she was she was something else on her own. Meyer handled handled most of the
1: uh, money laundering and stuff for the mob did all the books and everything and she took suitcases full of money she flew down to Havana a number of times to launder casinos down there and she just bring it all back and every once in a while she would give him a tchotchke a little tchotchke of a, of a, of a shot glass or something in Havana she'd bring back here Michael have this you That's know right. oh what am I going to do with the shot glow, shot glass he's nine years old you know
0: yeah well he he got started pretty pretty young so maybe uh maybe he hit it after uh daddy daddy roy it was a daddy roy that uh, daddy roy yeah yeah like uh the 13 year old uh uh compensating for for losing his mentor by slamming back a bunch of booze and pills like you're 13 yeah. man like what are you doing <laughs> wow like i don't even i can't imagine what I, I i'm pretty sure those two things would have been so alien to me when i was 13 years old i wouldn't have even got it but he's just like yeah i'm gonna have it i'm gonna throw a few back take a nap you know at 13 (laughs) he was
1: he was a big person huge when i met him he was 325 in a wheelchair missing half of both his feet to diabetes you know um you know that's that's a uh uh he was 6'1 when he was 14 and already 200 pounds so he was he was feeling uh uh his size and using that to intimidate even at that age he was asking his mom at 16 years old hey can you get me a job doing what you know doing collections and stuff and what what you so you you don't think I'm capable no she just wouldn't throw him a bone mm-hmm. but but when she got stuck with counterfeiting money with him when she's in in uh, this is in the second book when she uh, at the end of this first book really uh, when she's in uh go to go to Tijuana to the Calyante racetrack, uh she begs Hardy, begs him to take her time. And he finally acquiesces. He thinks, okay, she's finally gonna love me, respect me, something. She says, oh, I'll be there, I'll send you money. She just disappeared. He had to fend for himself. He was he went to work for a gay drug lord, <laughs> which is uh, Mexican prison is an entirely another world the place yeah you're in,
0: yeah, yeah I, I, like that's that's a fight for your food prison like that's that, that yeah that uh, they said he was a pistolero they, they actually called him a pistolero which i I, I found funny it reminds me of like a spaghetti western or something like that you know <laughs> well he was um, supposed
1: he was supposed to sell and collect money sell drugs collect money from the 25 Americans that were stuck in there so these this place, you understand, on Tuesdays was girlfriends could visit. Thursdays, wives. And on Sundays, they'd open the gates to the prison so whole families could come in there. they have taco carts and fruit trucks and stuff like that. They'd be playing out in this big field in the middle of this prison. It was, it was just- That's Wild. Unlike, and you could have knives in there and you could have guns in there. But the, but the deal was- you couldn't use them to escape, and everybody played by those rules. Oh, okay. You use them for your own personal protection
0: inside a prison, just not inside on the of guards. prison. That's just right, not on the guards,
1: not, and not to escape. So, and if you did escape, this was fascinating to me. If you had three years to go on a, a ten-year sentence and you escaped, your time would keep running while you're outside prison. If they arrested you a year later. You'd only have two years left to go and you that's, wouldn't be charged with the escape because they said it's the nature of man not to be held captive. It was, I'd never seen it, seen or heard anything like that.
0: That's fascinating.
1: <laughs> then, and this prison, this prison had whole families living there too. Well, they arrested the father and the, everybody else just moved in. So Yeah. Was, what, are,
0: what are they supposed to do in, in that system? What are, they, what are the options? You know, Yeah. that's Wow. that's but so yeah he did a year there um but and, and um but like you said when his mom's begging him to take the charges just another throwaway just another accessory just uh, she got what she needed and, and bailed but um didn't she so he takes a fall for her the for that one but didn't she didn't she um feed him to the feed him to the prosecutors a second time yeah what she fed him fed
1: him to the feds yeah, uh, him. In uh, 1972, he was running a finger of the Five Fingers International Car Theft Ring. Uh, this, this is where poor people, they would, they would go buy a brand new Cadillac, drive it home, pull it into the circular driveway. Oh, honey, honey, come on out, run in the front door. The car would be gone. <laughs> <laughs> they drive it over to a warehouse that the mob had because they had people just follow them drive it over the warehouse they took vin numbers from old wrecked cars they put it put that on the up by the windshield because that's really where everybody checked even though there was one on the rocker panel and one on the engine and they had a guy in albany that altered paperwork then the cars were theirs they'd buy them for 600 bucks hardy was in charge of distributing them on the west coast so he would drive them out he drove across america geez 40 times in his life and he delivered deliver cars and she was living in a La Costa area and she would get, uh, you know, tell about a dealership that was just going under, have real good deals. I got this car here and they'd make 1200 bucks a piece on it. And that was her job. Well, it's always a little old lady <laughs> that sees things and someone living next door. These cars were blocking the street. They had new Cadillacs with, with New York plates on them. And, uh, she called up the cops. They sat on, sat on her watch, watching her for a couple of weeks and then pinched her. And then to cut a deal, to reduce her time, she gave up her son.
0: What a, a sweetheart. Yeah. What a family, what a family there, but you you know, you try to put that in context of today and with the, the cars, the way they're built, the technology and, uh, and the systems that law enforcement have, you're like, he's not going to make it He's not going to make it past, uh, you know, Schenectady on the way to California. But 1972, uh, NCIC. If I don't even know if that was in, ex- in existence yet. So the idea of pinning that, pinning that windshield bin on that car. Nobody's climbing under there to, to check the engine block. Nobody's going to. Nobody's taking the time to do that on the side of the road. So that's easy. Just taking. All you're doing is you're, you're making money by the time you drive out there. That's and and who's with the chances anybody's ever going to find out. Yeah. That's, well, he yeah. told
1: me one, one time, he, uh, one time he uh, was interesting. He said, here we are in 2014 having this discussion. He says, you know, today with today's technology, DNA, the way they can track phones and cars and everything like that, the, the, he robbed dozens of banks along the way. There's no way that he'd be able to commit the same crimes today than did back then.
0: Yeah. Just not possible. Technology alone, just a, uh, just takes all of that away, and it's a, and it's just getting harder. I mean, with um, with any kind of scheme anymore, it's because uh, I mean, look at the, you know that just running the the uh, those kind of schemes today is a completely different business. Trying to rob cars, I mean, they've still got some pretty good creative uh, car theft rings around, but they've got a really tight time frame to get those things on a cargo ship and and off overseas. There's no like domestic trading market anymore for for those long term. Uh, car thefts unless you're chopping them up into pieces. But, but yeah, it's just the technology's taking all that away at this point, which hey, is uh, an interesting comment. You know, it's an interesting comment on on the times we, we live in. It's harder to be a criminal. It is harder to be a criminal <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> I guess. <Yeah. laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, that's a, just, as I'm reading all of that, just uh, just the personality that, that you had to deal with, um, you started out by saying that that he was all about telling you about his deeds, like telling you his story and the legend of Michael Hardy um, until the point that you built that trust. How long did it take? And how did you guys' relationship evolve over time when you were trying to get all this out of him?
1: Uh, he, It took about four or five months till he finally saw some chapters that were looking pretty good. Uh, I put together five chapters or so. And by, uh, by that time, and I, I run a beta writers group, which is not beta readers, but beta writers group made up of authors and run it six times a month. And I put every chapter through there. and These guys pick up all kinds of things, logic bombs and tense shifts and all the POV shifts and all these crazy things that, that, uh, that really, they mark up anything that stops or confuses them as a, as a reader and then they suggest changes the writer and yet they also on top of that when we meet via zoom now is they uh, give ideas for fixing it really creative just brainstorming oh
0: fantastic yeah uh, working with a team that's crazy that's awesome oh yeah that, yeah that concept
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, oh it's, yeah. it's it's i've been doing that since 2013 after i met the gangster so um he uh, i did not challenge him i noticed uh early on, I couldn't challenge him. I had to listen, accept, and encourage. And I'd only ask questions for clarity. And then when I could, I went and researched all these all these crimes and things he said he did through other sources. Uh, I'm in touch with his, uh, with his younger sister right now. She lives out in Florida. Uh, the other sister that's younger than her doesn't even stay in touch with anyone. Him, him, she didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) But it was, but it was going through uh, getting these chapters in front of his uh, his uh, lawyer, Jimmy Blatt, to have him look them over and make adjustments because, no, no, I wouldn't have done that. This is what the interrogation room, where the visitors room would be. This is what what happened because I didn't stop Hardy when we were talking to go over that detail he'd, he'd, uh, he'd add the color afterwards after I finished that, par- that
0: chapter. Yep. So you get the architecture down and then bring it back for the senses and all that, that aspect of filling the, the, the detail, the color, as you say. Yeah, that's, I was wondering that because the, um, as you described your guys' first meeting, it's, uh, it's like, man, that's, that's a, you're talking to a stone wall. That's going to take a while, but <laughs> just, just getting an immediate feel, um, he was so hungry, though,
1: to have someone tell his story. Nick Pelleggi had set him up with someone that was supposed to do it for him. And this guy was a drunk or something. He kept on promising him. Uh, Nick had also set him up with, uh, uh, to sell part of his life story uh, that got turned into a movie called Fatherhood with Patrick Swayze and Holly Berry. And, uh, and this guy, uh, Bobby Debrino, was supposed to be doing that. And that just never, the guy was just full of it. He was just, he figured was scamming Nick Pelleggi. Nick Pelleggi, you know, wrote Goodfellas and, and yeah. Casino. He had the books for both of the movies too, but worked with Scorsese. So I've been in touch with Nick and met him a couple of times too. Pretty interesting guy.
0: And, and this story just fits right along. Like as I'm reading it, I'm, I can see Goodfellas, I can see Casino, I can see all of it just because it's basically there. I mean, he's just like, he'd be the guy in the, you know, they take Joe Pesci down in the basement. He'd be the guy way in the back, right? <laughs> like a, the background, background actor and just have a an arrow point. And this is where Hardy stood, right? <laughs> but yeah, and it's, and uh, I mean, they put those on the screen and, you know, you can read Sammy's, Sammy the Bull's uh, book. You can read Hardy's book. Um, and when you read it, like, like just like you saying, him and Gravano run around just doing robberies, pretty much whatever they could come up with. You know taking off a, a drug dealer and holding them hostage um you put it on the screen you put it in the books it's very hard for like us to fathom that that is that just exists that you've got pretty much um you know cowboys that would fit perfectly into you know the wild west running around modern day new york city just making it work just this is who we're gonna be we're, we're outlaws within these burrows. And this is what we do. And it's, and they do it. They just say that underworld is just something you don't see unless you're connected to it, which is, I, I find that a fantastic parallel. That's an actually true, you know, true parallel for a while. None of these things, none of these things find consistency. It's, it's a uh, waves and troughs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Unless you stumble into it somehow, unless you yeah. stumble across it, but you don't even realize you're in the midst of it when it's going down. Oh, he did. <laughs> he did some really just some fantastic nick pledge he thought he's one of the most intelligent gangsters and criminals he ever met all the other guys were just thugs and stuff but hardy oh my god his recall dates names places phone numbers times weather every everything you can imagine that uh, he would he would go from talking in third person and all of a sudden he was instead of i walked into a room and pulled out my gun he said i walk in a room and pull out my gun and stuck it in joey's face oh okay you know it's just he went back and he was reliving it so it all went into present tense first person it was just pretty interesting to capture that voice
0: Yeah. What a, what a great, uh, what a great perspective to be able to have him be in that cognizant, uh, that, that cognition to put himself right back in that situation uh, would just, uh, and just eliciting with all those, like you said, you just, uh, you didn't challenge, you just collected, but with him actually going back into that moment, just fills so much color uh, to these stories. That's, um, but it is, it is funny. Like you mentioned, you know, that the descent as a a little kid just like everybody else's little kid and then by the time he's 13 he know he just sees it and he's like I'm done it's all about me and further in you see that he's at some family thing and whereas in the beginning before Papa Roy uh family is the most important thing Roy and Morty and and the the crew that all seem like they're always crammed into a tiny little house someplace but but everybody's happy and then just uh he's there with the with all the aunts and uncles and he's like i looking at his watch He's like i got a bank i gotta rob i, I gotta go i i got stuff to do <laughs> none of it's good but i gotta get, I'm, you,
1: I'm not making money sitting here you know? yeah
0: yeah <laughs> and it's and it's just uh interesting the way you documented that that transition from from uh you know innocence to just i'm an outlaw and that's what i'm gonna be and he was he was perfect he seemed like and and i don't mm. want to put words in his or your mouth but he just accepted who he was at that point. By the time you met him, was he like, yeah, I'm an outlaw. That's what I do.
1: There were points in his life, uh, a couple very uh very uh, that where all the stars aligned where he started. He was in Borden Town Reformatory for those two and a half years when he's 19. Uh, they allowed conjugal visits, his wife got pregnant. He had a had a child. And uh she brought him to see him, Hardy, and all of a sudden, my God, I'm a father. Okay, I have responsibility. He went and got his GED. So when he got out of there, he just felt more confident. You know, he's going to get a job. So what if it's 5 bucks an hour? So what if it's construction? So what? You know, try something like that. And every time, a couple months, three to six months later, all of a sudden, something comes up. He's working in security. at some men's clothing store. And he's, he's there in the middle of the night and he finds a box of Argyle socks. Well, it's not Argyle socks. It's full of money. He's got $12,000. Uh-huh. He's smart enough only to take half of it. He only takes $6,000, you know, fluffs up the rest of the money. He gives 3000 to his buddy, 3000 bucks to his buddy who got him the job. And he's there living large life is good, but he starts in it. And uh, he was driving home after he got that $6,000. He was driving home and he's uh, uh, he's still dressed in a uniform and everything. And he sees some guy, some guy cuts him off. So he flashes his lights. The guy pulls him over. (laughs) He he gets 50 bucks off the guy rather than saying he's going to write him up for a ticket, even though he's wearing security, (laughs) security guard. And that 50 bucks meant more to him than the $3,000 he just pulled in for himself it's just it's just uh the, the way he looked at things
0: that's a that's a that's a weird perspective but i also get it if you could you're just scamming some dude in the highway in the middle of the night that's that's got to make you giggle a little bit it's a little bit inside yeah. not that i have that instinct but it is it does entertain me to you know to challenge oneself i guess so the, yeah. And, and so this is a, a three book series that you're working on, correct? So, yes, that we started, we get up to um, adulthood here and then two and three are, are, are coming down. Yeah, what's your time frame?
1: Uh, book number two will be out in a couple months. Um, it really chronicles him uh, getting out of going. Well, it starts with him going into prison in Mexico. And it ends with him. In, <laughs> he's in witness protection. <laughs> he goes into WITSEC um, because he was so pissed off at Sammy the Bull Gavano when he gets out of prison for the car theft that his mom turned him in for that, that he that he decides he's going to Sammy will give him the time of day. So he says, OK, I'll get even with you. So he wears wires for Giuliani and he uh, he gets Sammy for these Dunn brother murders. And so they they tuck they they sent him to Hollywood and he allowed to pick any name he wants. Uh-oh. And he picks out Michael Harden because of uh, John Wesley Hart, the famous outlaw in the 1800s. Uh, and he goes to he, and he's and he's just hanging out and he's at a cheap, cheap hotel. The Fed set him up with. He's waiting for whenever they do call him back to go back to Brooklyn, and testify. And he calls up somebody he met years before that was trying to get him to be in a in a in some cheesy little movie and it being Easy Rider. And <laughs> I, know, I know. Anyway, he calls this guy up and he's working in a studio called Raleigh Studios. He's shooting something over there. He's using all these terms and stuff. And he calls Hardy back. Hey, why don't you come up with me to the studio? And he meets the studio president. The president just loved. Hardy's a good storyteller. So this guy's... This Hardy just knows how to work him. And the guy hires him to be his muscle at the studio. And Hardy works there on and off for 10 years. He has a couple of non-speaking roles in sword and sandal movies. He's just wow. and he and meanwhile he goes back to robbing drug dealers. He's doing all this while he's still under Witsack. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's just, I mean, that so a lot of that is in the second book. Um and it chronicles him him when he goes to prison. It's really a, um, a, f- a real f- f- fulcrum in his life that t- tilted uh, either way. He meets a gentleman that, that heads up the Maritime um, Union in prison when he's in Danbury Prison. And this and he Hardy takes a German class and it doesn't you know mm-hmm. the lady really talks teaches German, <laughs> 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 but he was thinking he'd like German because. If they, he had to deal with Nazis again, he'd be prepared. Understand what they say. You know, there's a logic to it. Plus, her husband wrote some some book on sexuality that was banned, and he wanted to see if he could get her to tell him tell him about it. She wouldn't have any. That's so he switches. <laughs> so he switches and gets a um, decides to take a Bible class. He'll learn something, and he meets this gentleman's class, and there's something with a calmness about him that just strikes him. They do walks around the yard. Every day, this is a federal prison, so it's no stabbings and stuff like that. They walk around the yard every night. They they become really good friends. And uh, this, and Hardy asks him, "What? Why is it?" And the guy says, "Christ, you know." I said, "I'm a believer." And just when, um, just when everything looks like it's clicking back together, Hardy's getting out of prison. Uh, this guy Judd is going home for two weeks during the holidays. Call me up, Michael, if you need any help. i'll fly a jet up there the guy's got money got connections and the guy has a heart attack and dies while he's on uh uh, a furlough for a couple weeks during the holidays and then hardy's mentor just gone just poof just again like a daddy roy but this is a different point later on in his life that just and he still tries to hang in there but there there are a couple marshals that are running this halfway house they're (laughs) they're trying to scam these Scan these convicts. They have the convicts pay them five dollars a night not to stay there. Wow. That, okay. So they can, yeah, I can see that. So, so they can <laughs> rent out the rooms for other for purposes. So, <laughs> yeah. so Hardy ends up wearing wires again for Giuliani this time after he's got out of prison, and to to nab these dirty marshals. So, yeah. he's, and up till this interesting thing up till the uh, up through there he pretty much looked at law enforcement as not being very good guys, but afterwards he really appreciated them uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. He realized there were some bad marshals. There's some bad cops in Brooklyn. And, the, but uh, after that, he had a lot more respect.
0: Well, he, he I mean, he grew up uh, watching his mom hand, you know, judges, politicians, cops, just bags of money over and over and over again. So yeah, it's just part of the, the life. But uh, when it's it just uh, when I saw the part where, where he was working for Giuliani against Sammy the Bull, it's like and then and then the Hollywood thing. It's like they, there are some of those people that just have a roller coaster life. And it's and you getting the chance to document that is is uh, like you got to just sit back and laugh. Like, did, did he ever just say something and you you just had to sit back, put your pen down and be like, uh, what did you just what? say?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, there, I did it a bunch. Of, I couldn't do that too much because it would throw him off track. He'd go off on a tangent. So I, I learned how to stay within that, that uh, plot or that story that he was telling. And I verified that like, as much as I could through anything from rap sheets to documents. Uh, I just wrote Michael Conley, you know, who did The yep. Lincoln Lawyer and, and, uh, and Bosch, uh, the, uh, because he wrote an article about Hardy in 1991 when Hardy was being uh, sentenced for murdering his wife the last murder he committed and uh, and just touching base with him because he's written so many uh, he wrote
0: some true crime and now he writes a lot of,
1: of fictional. Yeah. Yeah.
0: His, his podcast is great too, by the way. If you've, yeah. if you've tried it, it's it's yeah. good. I, I really like him. Yeah. And you were asking of me earlier, but yeah, Bosch is pretty high up there. It, Wamba is always, is always the uh, pinnacle for me, but, but uh, Connolly he, he nails it like pretty much every time he goes out to bat. And, uh, yeah. but yeah it's uh, living where you out on the west coast you you get you've get, you've gotten to meet some pretty uh pretty interesting characters uh, just in within the business and and it's funny your own adventure with uh with coming around with the way a you ended up in the meeting with hardy is just the way this business works a random email because you you took an opportunity at a coffee shop it's like sure <laughs> yeah that's how things work right yeah he was
1: all he was all scary but that that's that yeah. uh, that's, that's how it came out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's just, it's just amazing uh, how this business works sometimes and how those opportunities present, present itself. It's but, well, my, uh,
1: un-pub- my unpublished book, this book that just came out, this published book, has been optioned already three times in Hollywood. And how that came about was just another story. Again, it's just putting yourself out there. Some old friend that I wrote some music with. Back, uh, back in the day, came to visit. He ended up living with me, he took me out to Rancho Santa Fe Farmer's Market where he knows the guy that runs that. And he's a very good friends with some, some millionaire who actually uh, built the entire uh, property where the Santa, Rancho Santa Fe Farmer's Market was. And I had no idea this guy had been in charge of all of the uh, uh, libraries in San Diego County. So he's reading five books at a time. He mentions, oh, oh Dave writes books. So he says, oh, he wants to see one. I give it to him, give him this book West and gave him to him, Mr. Meeks afterwards. And he just went crazy. And, I, and then I showed him, I had some advanced reader copies of The Last Jewish Gangster. He read those. He read that. And three weeks later, I meet him. He says, slips me the business card for his son-in-law, who was a Hollywood producer, director, and um uh, editor, and he fixes all these TV shows, and he said, "I just sent that book up with my daughter," and the guy calls me two weeks later, said, "I got to meet." So he had a ch- this guy actually had a chance to meet Hardy, and you know, uh, pretty interesting. It, yeah. That got the ball rolling in there, but it, all, it takes somebody that is uh, a real champion to get something happening in Hollywood, you need a director, or you need some talent that's really tied into it. And then just the financing, there's just so many things that can go wrong, but when they go right, it just can blow up.
0: Yeah. And it seems like that's how this whole bit, I mean, there's so much content that floods those people that it's overwhelming for them. Like there's, there's zero chance, you know, you just send it, ends up on the slush pile and it's like lightning striking, but it, because it's, and it's not, to say that, that the people holding the, the, that are at the gates are bad people and don't want to let you in. They just can't see you because they have a tide of paper coming at them over and over and over again. It's, have it's you had, wild.
1: have you had anything, any, any tickles along those lines, getting any of your books or anything? No.
0: You know? Um, up until, uh, up until blood, red ivory, I, I've really just, uh, it's been fun for me. It's a uh, recreation and it's funny. Uh, last year, um, uh because i go to i'll go to book conferences and do panels and and and, uh and signings and stuff like that um and my wife will go sometimes but the last year was the first one she actually got to go for the entire thing and as we're sitting there i'm just i'm just having fun i get to talk books with readers who get to get on panels and mess around with other authors and um so my wife but my wife is a social butterfly so she's wandering around this conference talking to everybody and she's seeing all these um, authors that that that's their job that that's what they do and and um, and she's like yeah this person is is really successful doing this and she does that and I'm like oh that's cool that's cool she's like you're you need to stop being an artist and start looking at this as a business at some point I'm like well I'm not as smart or mature as you are so I'm just <laughs> I'm I'm writing the crazy stuff that pops in my head and but I'm but I'm like yeah hey, you're kind of right like if I'm gonna do this I should probably start looking at the business side so. Honestly, it's it's been fun for me, uh, and and it still is. But I, I'm just starting to pay attention to marketing and the business and all that stuff. So I I honestly, <laughs> I I like I made the decision to to be a professional. <laughs> so <laughs> like like I told you when we were talking, I didn't actually become an adult until I was 36 when my first kid was born. So I'm um, you know, eight years into this writing game with seven novels. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be a professional, (laughs) you know? Okay. So, so yeah. So as an answer, I'm, I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're,
1: and your wife is helping you walk, work on it too.
0: She's, she's, she's the brand's the outfit. You know, you can, you can meet us for five minutes and you already got that figured out. (laughs) But but she's passionate. She loves your storytelling too. She thinks
1: you really got it. got something here.
0: She's a good coach. Yeah. She, and she, uh, She's uh, she'll let me know. She she like when I was playing around doing some recordings at night when I was tossing around this podcast idea of like what do you think? She's like nope. <laughs> <I'm> like okay, <laughs> I'll go back to the drawing board. How about this one? Nope. <laughs> and it was once <laughs> once I got a yes, I was like okay, then I'll uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll kick the green light on this one. We'll see. Um, but yeah, she's uh, she's definitely in charge. She's my uh, she's my manager. <laughs> Great, which is best for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you mentioned uh, West and Mister Meeks. Um, talk go talk about the talk about those a little bit. Uh
1: those are books I, I wrote Mr. Me, I wrote West Journey Across the Plains, uh, when I just after I started uh interviewing Hardy. And it's an idea I had. I was stuck in traffic and on these two places, the 805 and the five, going north, they jump jump, meet up in Del Mar and stuck in traffic, and I looked off to the right of the hills just near sunset. And I was thinking, geez, the the pioneers that came down these washes, you know, these down these hills and tried to go to these riverbeds to try to make it to the ocean or get somewhere. They just had to have balls of steel, you know, uh, how, how they could pack up what they had, and feel safe traveling around. Um, and it started germinating this idea. So I told this entire book through journals, journal and letters. Uh, and postings and uh i make up the story at the beginning everybody believes true story so they believe hardy <laughs> is fiction and they <laughs> believe west and mr meeks is is nonfiction. Uh, but i I, I i i do set up i do set them up that way and i wrote the story out first it's, it's a father taking his family a uh, 17 year old girl 15 year old son and two twin year olds nine year old twins and, and wife uh from Pittsburgh to on the onto the Oregon Trail, and even before they leave on the Oregon Trail, the seventeen-year-old daughter slips into a, a darkness. As the father writes, and their family is told that, that uh, she'll never recover, and uh, they say, by the way, if you hang around here, you're going to get infected. Hard decision the, the father makes. He leaves money to their caretakers. Please take care of her, and he takes off with the rest of his family. So you see him writing his journal, all this, all these horrible things that are happening. They're struggling to make it through, but they're staying alive. And then all of a sudden there's a separate journal entry that starts. It's interwoven and it's a daughter who has lived and she starts documenting her travels. Whoa. So the promise of the story, these journals make it together somehow, but you don't know how. And it it goes on, um, um, the basic idea behind this, my great-grandfather went to an auction in Sacramento, found these papers that he just bought. They sat around in storage for 100 years or something, and then, ooh, I got my hands on them. I reprinted them with great care. So that's that's that story. And then Mr. Meeks is a, a story on uh, kind of the same. It was a manuscript that was that was lost a young cub reporter from a San Francisco examiner was interviewing Meeks, an old grizzly mountain man. And you see the, uh, reporter's notes where he says, Oh God, I got to spend another afternoon with another crazy old man that thinks he did great things, you know, and he, and he comes to really know him over the next couple months. And, uh, and Meeks was a key, um, key driver in the west story because he helped the the girl that as she came sarah the the girl that came to california to look for her family afterwards couldn't find them so she had to hire someone she found an attorney found this mountain man and his son they went out looking so it's they're kind of wove together like that
0: pretty cool i I found those i I didn't get to dive into them because i was trying to get trying to get through hardy uh, so that we could we could uh, we could chat but yeah i'm, I'm that's very nec- very next on my list once i'm done with hardy i'm, I'm okay. diving into those i just the, yeah the format was was just very cool and it's funny you mentioned you know that the inspiration that comes because you're, you're stuck on the freeway looking over at a hill and it just automatically i thought of um uh, elroy's uh, la confidential and they uh you know the that that uh enforcer group of detectives are just taking in all the organized crime guys coming from Chicago and St. Louis and just pounding them in the into the dirt to send them packing but they they parallel Elroy parallels that in with the with the settling of of uh California and and now that these are they always make a good point that nobody here are, are natives to this land but this is ours now and and you take yourself back to St. Louis but in the guise of describing that settling of, of what became Los Angeles because that's a, that immediately made me think about that's it. a great imagery. Yeah. Oh,
1: cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really nice. It's, it's funny. You, uh, you mentioned that I, um, I came, the idea for an entire book came up once when I was mowing the lawn, listen, a corn song just came on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just, just a random like really hard corn song came on and I'm halfway through mowing my lawn. And I was like, and I had to stop it's soaking wet just covered in sweat grabbed my notebook and i just had to sketch out like four pages I was like i'll be right back <laughs> you know, everybody my, my wife said what are you doing i'm like hold on hold on like, well, okay i'm I'll, I'll go finish the lawn now <laughs> but it
1: so you had just... uh, you had a mohawk for an afternoon You're in the middle of your <laughs> in the yeah. middle of your lawn
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but it is somehow corn made me think of a medieval castle diehard. <laughs> so it was it's die hard okay. in a medieval fantasy But it was just, I'm just like, and I can't remember which corn sign it was, but it was just dark with a really good beat. And I was like, tunnels and a castle, lots of bad guys. Hold on one second. I'll be right back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny where these ideas come from. Now, I've ghostwritten five books during the last nine years, too. One of them was an autobiography that was about a boring man (laughs) on purpose. (laughs) No, This was his life. He paid me to write his autobiography. He'd never been married. He has two nieces. He was born in 1921. He was 96 when I started meeting with him. He was just the nicest guy. And he's, um, Ella Fitzgerald played at his high school uh, Christmas party. He had all these things. He was in the the Navy for three and a half years. Uh, But I made it more interesting because I tried to weave in all these, uh, uh, they were um, like timestamps, like, like when he was, uh, his high school, not only Ella Fitzgerald, but what was going on in the world. There was some oh, news yeah. about, a, there's news about a war or something, or a song was on the radio, their movie had been released or something to try and anchor the story so people felt as if they're part a little bit more. The one thing he didn't bring up at all was that he was gay. He finally hmm. told me, he told me like nine months into meeting him, you know, he mentioned one day, you know, I once messed around with guys uh, in high school. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I did a little bit more than that. Okay. <laughs> well, I did that until I was six years old. Oh, okay. You know, hmm. uh, You know, he was. he was so afraid of what his neighbors would think and oh, wow. he, yeah and what his nieces would think and he finally wrote, <laughs> wrote him a letter that was classic and he showed me a copy of the letter I finally wrote my niece, nieces and told them I'd be gay and I didn't participate in everything ever, ever since 1981 and they were back and said oh yeah we knew yeah <laughs> you know, they always so, knew yeah. Because, yeah. because you went to 300 musicals you know <laughs> and you yeah. knew every show tune
0: you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's uh, it's funny though that um i mean like thinking about it today versus uh having to make that decision for that generation to just live in a shadow you know it's today it's, it's i think people still probably depending on circumstances the way they live have to make that decision but uh oh. yeah it's like but every time it's that you know when somebody tells you you're like yeah everybody knows man <laughs> like it's <laughs> everybody's cool yeah
1: <laughs> he went he worked this is really cool he worked for the. Uh, um, San Francisco Giants for 18 years, as a bookkeeper. I said, oh, did you know Willie Mays? Oh yeah, oh my God, my pen is hovering over my pen. Yeah. Okay, tell me, tell me, tell me what happened. Well, Willie would come in every month, every month. Okay, I'm scribing this down. <laughs> he'd hand me an envelope, envelope. Oh good, 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 good.
0: <laughs> What's in it?
1: I'd open the envelope and then he'd take out all the receipts and put them in the, the manual. <laughs> manual uh adding machine crunch da, 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 crunched and they, they'd write him an expense check and why will he why will he stood there and waited you know that that's that was willie may story oh so like, oh so
0: close so close I,
1: he was it was like he was so close after he worked for a a chemical company for 10 years in buffalo he worked 18 years for them uh for the giants and then he moved down to san diego and he ended up going, working for a toxic, well, ended up being a toxic waste company. Is they, what they did was they destroyed like five acres of land down in Mexico. Uh, but yeah. they, um, they took old batteries and stuff and they made of all the, you wanna talk about boring? They made lead weights. Whoa, <laughs> just... lead, lead, lead weights. You know, we had, we had 50 pound bars and 25 pound bars of these lead weights. That was it. That was a catalog of products, you know, and that's all he did, but, but at least it was a fascinating trip down through history, almost like through a boring man's eyes.
0: Yeah. Like seeing, uh, you know, he's on, uh, he's stuck in traffic commuting when the, uh, the radio breaks out for Hiroshima. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's just whoop, he's thinking about the lead weights. He's got to build today. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, man. That's yeah. That's something. But, uh, I uh I hate to do this. I feel like we could probably talk till midnight, but oh I just been fun. Uh, yeah, I got two little boys. I gotta um get ready for uh get ready for bed and I gotta entertain a little bit. So okay um but uh I really appreciate you you meeting me. And before we go, um are you social media links? I, I know you've got that website for uh for for West and, and Mr. Meeks.
1: You go to the last Jewish and you'll, you'll, you can find everything else you need, links to, to the book, but also find some background information on the family and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Great. Great. Well, thank you again for, uh, for meeting me tonight. This is, this has been great. And we'll have to do it again when uh, two and three come out. Cause, uh, yeah, like I said, we didn't even scratch a surface on this dude. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> like, it's like this go, this whole guy's, uh, life is like Jason, the Argonauts. You just don't know what's coming next. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that, that's the way it was super yep. thank you so much john really appreciate absolutely it.
0: thank you and everybody i appreciate you listening thank you for uh dave larson joining me uh don't forget about uh, blood red ivory um audio books coming out fantastic feedback I, and thank you very much to the readers that are that have been so supportive on this so far and uh we will talk to you next week